again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Can you outgrace God? A true understanding of the grace we've been given naturally results in passing that grace on to others, however it's needed. Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series, A Glorious Grace, Generosity and Grace, with this message entitled, Abounding Grace, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a teaching series on, on glorious grace, and we're now, in light of where we're going in our all-in and all, we're thinking, well, let's make sure we teach well uh, about the understanding of generosity. And so grace and generosity, they are connected, as you will well see today. But uh, Bob picks up on our series. It's a team series. I'll have the privilege of closing out the last two on this segment of grace. Uh, But uh, today, Bob will be uh, teaching us. So let me pray for you, Bob, and look forward to the teaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, thank you for Bob. Thank you for the uh, incredible uh, value that you have added to this ministry for decades now. Uh, through his service. Uh, Thank you for the the sweet friendship that not only Bob and I have had for many, many, many years beyond the life of this church, but but particularly here uh, laboring together. I pray you would use him today as he teaches us. May your truth feed our souls. Uh, Use him in a powerful way and thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Randy. If you're if you're not aware, uh, Randy and I lived down the street from one another when we were kids, so the relationship does go a long, long way back, and he began to be a spiritual mentor to me when I was, I was in my early teens, so indeed very, very thankful uh, for all of that. On March 2nd of this year, not that many weeks ago or months ago, my wife and I entered a new adventure, and that is because on March 2nd, our first grandchild was born. Yes, it's appropriate to be excited with us. We're so excited. And we are absolutely smitten with Robert Clifton Cargo. Now, as you might expect, I'm excited that his first name is Robert. But I'm also excited that my son and his daughter-in-law decided to call him Clifton. That is after my wife's maternal grandfather, who was a man of huge influence upon our family, though he died before I even met Margaret Ann. His legacy and his influence is just that big. So we are so excited about Clifton Cargo. In fact, we think he's the cutest child on his street. (laughs) And the reason we can think that is we've never seen any of the other children on his street. So we're hanging tight with that opinion about Clifton. Now, I don't know a lot of things about Clifton's future, but I do know this. The two of the first words he will learn to say And two words that will come out of his mouth very often in the first few years of his life are the words no and the word mine, right? If you've raised kids, you know that's true. And one of the reasons I know it's true is we raised two sons and two daughters, and we know that very early they learned the words no and the word mine. Another reason I know that to be true is that I see those two attitudes spring up out of my heart all the time. No, I like my idea better than your idea. No, I want it my way, not your way. And if something comes into my realm, if it's in my house, if it's in my bank account, if I can grasp it with my hands or try to get my influence around it, I want to say, mine, mine, mine. Now, just to illustrate that, 
One day this last week while I was working some on this sermon, oddly enough, I wasn't in my home office. I was sitting at the kitchen table. That's not where I usually prepare my sermons, but I was sort of working on it, sitting at the kitchen table. Margaret Ann was to my right reading a book. And as I was working, all of a sudden, I couldn't find my blue big pen, my 25-cent blue big pen. And I realized Margaret Ann was using it. And with a bit of an attitude, I said to her, is that my pen? (laughs) While I'm working on a sermon about generosity, go figure. (laughs) What is it that gets into our hearts this way? Generosity and grace. You know, I think we we would have to agree that both of these words are great words, but we're all sort of conflicted about both of these words, right? Think about the word generosity. We all admire generous people. Even if we're not Christians, we know that all Christians should be generous people. But what happens in our hearts? Isn't it true that every one of us, we sort of bristle and the defense mechanisms come up when we realize today's sermon is about generosity? It happens to me. It doesn't happen to you happens to all of us. Now, why is it that 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 attitude springs up so quickly? Why do we bristle? It could be one of two things or a little bit of both. Maybe it's just that three-year-old attitude, that two-year-old attitude, no, mine. Or maybe another reason is this. Maybe in a deep, deep level, spiritually, psychologically, we've never really combined this idea of grace and the idea of generosity. So deep in our hearts, what we feel is that the call to be financially generous is something we are being forced to do instead of something we are now eagerly and joyfully free to do, something we want to do, something we want to practice because the grace of Jesus has touched our hearts. We're conflicted about generosity. We may also be conflicted about the word grace. I'm going to have to admit to you, as I've said in some previous sermons, that I've been a minister for years and even a, and a Christian much longer than that, when I still thought of grace and I thought of the gospel of grace as just one of the most important topics of Christianity. Really important, but just one of the topics, rather than the topic that permeates every other topic. Imagine having a steak in front of you and imagine having steak sauce. And imagine putting on the first few bites, just the first few bites of that steak, the steak sauce. I used to think of grace like that. Grace is what's added to the first few bites of the Christian experience so that it gets you to eat the rest of the steak. Now, grace is like the marinade that permeates every square inch of that steak. Every bite of that steak is marinated in grace. You see, grace isn't just the way we enter the Christian experience. Grace transforms every second of every part of our whole Christian experience from beginning to end. A minister in New York City has put it this way, the gospel of grace is not just the ABC of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. Very well said. Imagine, if you would, a drab gray coat with a brilliant red satin collar. I used to think of grace like that red satin collar that would get your attention and draw you to put on a drab gray Christian experience. Grace is not like that red collar. Grace would be like a red dye 
that turns every thread of the coat from drab gray into beautiful and brilliant red. The Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And for many years I thought that meant that Paul was simply an evangelist. He gave the gospel to them and once they were converted, he moved on. Years later I realized, no, he was their pastor. He taught them God's word and what he meant was this. I will teach you one topic after another, but every topic will be taught in light of Christ and Him crucified. This whole series, as Randy said, is called A Glorious Grace. And one of the reasons it is a glorious grace, it transforms every square inch of the Christian experience. This morning in our sermon, we want to look at a passage that very explicitly connects three things. It connects the gospel of grace. It connects also uh, the cross of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. And it connects the call to be generous. Those three things, the grace of God, the cross and incarnation of Christ, and the call to be generous. And this is what we're going to see. If we really understand the connection between gospel and grace and giving, we're going to see that this call to generosity is not something we're forced to do. It's not something we just have to do. It's something we are eagerly and joyfully wanting to do because we've been changed by the gospel of grace. With that in mind, please stand as we read God's Word. This is our passage today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible, look with me please at this passage. You'll see it on the screen also. You have it in in your order of worship. There's a little insert called Points to Remember. The front of that is the outline of today's message. The second panel gives you the passage. And this is what it says from the New International Version. Paul says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, that is, the ones in northern Greece. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy in their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And I'll tell you later what that means. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And so we urged Titus, a helper of the Apostle Paul, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of what? This act of grace on your part. But just as you excel or abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, See that you also excel. See that you abound in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And here's the main verse of the day. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Verse 9 is the main verse of the day. Would you read it aloud with me, please? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Oh Lord, speak to our hearts today. Show us our Savior. Show us our hearts. Show us the wonderful call to be people of generosity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Our message today has three very simple parts. We're going to look at Jesus' story, then we're going to look at our story, part one, and then our story, part two. Easy enough, right? Jesus' story, our story, part one, our story, part two. What is Jesus' story? Here is Jesus' story. It's the story of going from riches to poverty. It's the story of grace being given. We see it in verse 9 again. I can't read God's Word too often. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. I want you to try to imagine two things. I want you to try to imagine the unbelievable riches of Jesus before He became incarnate, before He became a man. And then I want you also to envision and try to imagine the poverty that he embraced for the sake of you and me. Think, first of all, about the unimaginable riches of Jesus before he became incarnate. And we do believe, don't make any mistake about it, we do believe in the pre-existent Christ. We believe that from all eternity past, he was the second person of the Trinity, always existent. But later, for our sake, he assumed a body and became man. But he was always God from eternity past. The Nicene Creed says, He is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. The confession of our church, the Westminster Confession says, He, was, he is equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. Now, where do we see in the Scriptures that Jesus was before he was born? John 17, 5, for example, Jesus said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. When? Before the world began. John 17, 24. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me. When? Before the creation of the world. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And isn't it true? We can only begin to try to imagine the absolute beauty of wealth, the vastness of the wealth that Jesus experienced in heaven for all eternity. We can only try to imagine the untold angelic beings that sang his praise constantly, all the time, all the time, all the time. We can only imagine the brilliance of his glory, the shining of his beauty, the constant exaltation of his name. All this created universe is like a speck of dust compared to all the vast riches that Jesus had in eternity past. Our older daughter, after college, lived in Italy for a year, and we went to visit her. And in preparation for that trip to Italy, we began to read certain tour guide books. And one of those tour books said about St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It said, to say that St. Peter's Basilica is vast is like calling God smart. (laughs) That's so true. To say that it's vast, you know, to say God is smart just doesn't get it. And to say that Jesus was rich before the incarnation. It just doesn't get it done. Imagine how rich Jesus was. Now, I want you to imagine also the poverty that he embraced for you and me. This passage is primarily about the poverty of his incarnation. He never ceased to be God. He never put aside his divinity, 
But for your sake and mine, he put aside the glory of his divinity. And he put aside the access to all of that wealth and all of that praise and all of that glory in heaven for you and for me. The Bible says that he humbled himself and he became a man. He became obedient to his father, even obedient to the point of dying on the cross. And not only was he humbled in his incarnation, became poor in his incarnation. Think of the kind of family in which he lived. They said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He grew up in a poor carpenter's family, living a life of poverty like none of us here ever have. And then what little Jesus had as a carpenter, he walked away from it to start his ministry. And during his ministry, he owned nothing except the clothes on his back. Jesus himself said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night. Imagine also what he lost at his betrayal. He lost all of his friends. Imagine what he lost at his arrest. He lost his freedom. Imagine what he lost at his torture and his beating. He lost his dignity. It was designed to humiliate, and it did. And then upon that cross, my friends, he lost his blood for you and me. And on that cross, he lost his life for you and me. And before he died, he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he was saying he lost something that he had enjoyed for all of eternity. He lost his fellowship with his father. And that was more painful than the spikes that went through his hands and through his feet. For his father to turn away, and he lost that fellowship. Why? For your sake and for my sake. My friends, there has never, ever been a more impoverished man on the face of the earth than the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. Why did he do that? The outward reason was you and me. The inward reason was his grace. Amazing grace, extraordinary grace, abounding grace. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, but for your sake, he became poor. That's the story of Jesus. Now, in light of that story, what is our story? Our story has two parts. The first part is this. Our story is going from poverty to riches. It is a story of grace being received. (laughs) He went from riches to poverty to give grace. And because we receive grace, we go from poverty to riches. Look again at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. One of the things I love about our lead pastor, he he says things in very memorable ways. One of the ways he has described the gospel is this. You've heard it before. We lost it all. He paid it all. We get it all. Isn't that a great summation of the gospel? In our sin, we lost it all. In coming to live for us and die for us, Jesus paid it all, and therefore we get it all. Now, what is the all that we get? Well, it's more than we could describe today, but I might summarize it a little bit this way. We get a new record, we get a new heart, and we get a new world. Let me summarize that for you very, very quickly. Now, we're going to move through a lot of theology in about three or four minutes, so hang on. But this is what we get. First of all, we get a new record. 
We get a new record. That is called the doctrine of justification. There's one of our church planters in Dahlonega, Georgia, that's written a little book called The A Plus for the F, and this is what he describes this doctrine of justification. You and I have earned an F, an F by the way we have lived our lives. On the cross, Jesus took my F and he paid the consequences of my failing grade morally. But that's only half the good news of salvation. The other part of the good news is that Jesus in his life earned an A+. And the doctrine of justification means that the A-plus of Jesus is put on the top of my paper next to my name. He gives me a new record. He takes away the elf. He gives me an A-plus. I not only get a new record, I get a new heart. I get a new heart. That's the doctrine of regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes and He gives me a new birth and He makes me a new person. And out of that regeneration comes what we call sanctification. It's a new holiness. The work of the Holy Spirit applies over my lifetime the work of Jesus on the cross. And he takes that powerful cross and the empty tomb and he takes that power through the work of his Spirit and he creates in me as I trust in him and walk with him a new holiness in my life. And that's possible because I have a new heart, a new record, a new heart. And then someday when Jesus comes back again, he will give us a new world. We are heirs with Christ and joint heirs with Christ. And someday there'll be new heaven and a new earth. And we, if we are followers of Jesus, we'll be inhabitants of that new world where everything is just like it is supposed to be. Now, maybe you're here today sort of checking out Christianity and asking questions. But even as I described this in the last few minutes, maybe you were thinking to yourself, man, I need a new record Talk about someone who's earned an F. That's me. Can I get the A plus of Jesus instead of my F? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I need a new heart. I'm so enslaved to things that I know that are not holy. Golly, I want to be changed from the inside out. And if you're like me, you long for a new world. When I see things like happened in Las Vegas... When I see people I love that are suffering with illness, when I see myself battling sin every day inside me and around me, I yearn for a new world. And if that's you, if you want a new record and a new heart and a new world, then I would encourage you to do these three things. Admit, turn, and trust. Admit that you need a new record and a new heart. Turn to Jesus and give him the keys of your life and the steering wheel of your life. Let him be in charge, so to speak. And thirdly, trust. Throw yourself entirely upon the cross of Christ that his cross would take away your guilt and his cross would begin to change you. I hope you'll do that today. But my main point for the followers of Jesus is this. You are unbelievably rich. This kingdom that is going to come This kingdom belongs to you now. If you're that rich, why should you worry about what you're going to have tomorrow? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man who's walking through a field and he discovers a treasure in that field. And he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field. Now let me ask you, did that treasure cost him everything he had? Yeah, he sold all that he had. But was he richer or poorer after he found the treasure? He was richer. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. 
we submit everything we have and everything we are, but then we become richer than we ever were before because the kingdom of heaven becomes ours. Like Jeff has preached about these last two weeks, Jesus said, why do you worry about your life? Look at the birds of the air. God takes care of them. Look at the flowers of the field. They're so beautiful. If God takes care of, takes care of flowers and birds, he'll take care of you. Paul said in Romans 8, he said this, He who did not spare his own son for us all, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously and freely give us all things that we need? My friend, there is no reason to be anxious that you won't have what you need if you obey God's call to be generous. In the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see that the Christians in Philippi were a great example for the Christians in Corinth. Paul was going through his missionary journeys, and those Christians in Philippi gave sacrificially that he might take the gospel on to other places. And so Paul said to them this, he said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, don't be worried worried because you've been generous. God's going to take care of you. My friends, that is our story part one. Our story, part one, is going from poverty to riches. It's the story of receiving grace and therefore having no reason to be anxious. What's our story, part two? Our story, part two, is this. Out of poverty, having an abounding grace that is born of grace. Out of our poverty, we now have an abounding grace to give to others. And that abounding grace is born of grace. You know, in the sermon, I still haven't told you why in the world Paul is talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the Christmas story, when he's writing this letter to the Christians of Corinth. Let me give you the backstory behind the passage. Paul had gone on his missionary journey. He came into Europe at the call of God. He came first into the northern part of Greece, the area called Macedonia, and he preached the gospel, and these people were converted. He came on down into Greece, into Corinth, and these, these people were converted. And now Paul is writing back to these Christians in Corinth a bit later. And he is saying to them this, I want you to be generous like these people in Macedonia. What kind of generosity is he talking about? Well, here it is. As Paul took the gospel into Europe, he was concerned about Christians back in Israel. And he had a deep, deep passion. He had a deep passion that Jewish followers of Jesus would love Gentile followers of Jesus. And that Gentile followers of Jesus would love Jewish followers of Jesus. The churches in Greece, as you might expect, were majority Gentile and minority Jew. And likewise, the churches that were back in Israel were majority Jewish and minority Gentile. And Paul thought to himself, Christians ought to take care of one another. The people in Europe have a lot, and the people in Israel have so little. And I want the Jewish Christians to love the Gentile Christians and vice versa. We're talking a lot in our church these days, it seems, about redemptive unity. It's so prevalent in the Bible. Here it is in this passage again. And so Paul says, I'm going to send Titus around all through these churches in Europe to take up an offering and help the Christians back in Israel. And he did so for three reasons. For the glory of God, for the unity of the church, and also as an expression of grace. So if you really understand the gospel of grace, you'll want to give to help each other. And so listen to how he says it in these verses, verses 1 through 5. Again, follow with me. 
Now, brothers, we want you to know about what? The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in northern Greece. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy in their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I want to tell you, friends, that is gospel math that doesn't make sense. They had extreme trials, and they were very poor, but they had extreme joy and extreme generosity. That doesn't happen without the gospel. Verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able to give, and in fact, they gave beyond their ability. They gave more than they could. They gave so much that they risked their own security. Said, and then entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Oh, please let us give to this offering. And they did not do as we expected. They did more. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then in keeping with God's will, they gave themselves to us. I'm going to give you six observations about how they gave. This would go much too fast for you to try to write, write it down. Just watch and observe. This is how they gave. They gave sacrificially beyond their ability. They gave generously beyond their ability. They gave supernaturally. It was only by grace. They gave voluntarily, entirely on their own. Their own they participated. They gave eagerly. They pleaded with Paul, please let us give. And they gave sincerely. They just didn't throw a few coins in the plate. They gave themselves to the Lord. So no wonder Paul says in this passage, I want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian church. No wonder he says in verse 7, Corinthian Christians, just as you excel or abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and your love for us, see that you also excel. See that you abound in this grace of giving. My friends, that puts it together. Matthew Henry is one of my, my greatest uh, my re- people I love to read. A minister out of the 17th century in Great Britain. And this is what he has said, commenting on this passage. The grace of God must be owned. It must be embraced and received as the root and fountain of all good things in us or done by us at any time. Now, that's not real long or complicated, but I'm going to read it again because it is so wonderful. The grace of God must be owned. It must be embraced as the root and the foundation of all good things in us or all good things done by us at any, any time. Am I doing good things? Do I see good things in me? It doesn't come from my, my uh, personality. It doesn't come from my discipline. It doesn't come from my own character. It doesn't come from my smartness. It comes from the grace of God. Now, I want you to notice here in what Paul says. He puts two things together, our responsibility and the grace of God. He says, you strive to be a generous person. You excel at giving, but as you do, strive according to grace. Know that if you're a person who gives generously, it is only because of the grace of God. It's not either or, it's both and. You, excel at grace, it's your responsibility. But as you do, remember this, the root of your giving is the grace of God. The fountain of your giving is the grace of God. The foundation of your generosity is the grace of God. Both halves have to be put together. 
I love the way Scotty Smith has put it in his book called The Reign of Grace. God's grace is given freely and undeservedly, but not without intent and implications. We dare not try to privatize or domesticate the significance of God's grace. We've been called into a dynamic love affair, one that gives more than we could ever have hoped and demands more than we would freely give. To receive God's grace in Christ is to be brought into a revolutionary reign, not ushered into a quiet rest home. God's love is as disruptive as it is delightful, as demanding as it is delicious. God loves us exactly as we are today, but He loves us too much to leave us as we are and where we are. That's the effect of grace. You see, in our church, we want everything to be painted in this color of grace. And therefore, we want to ask you to do this. As you go to the vision forums and hear about the future of our church, as you go to the prayer gathering city by city and seek God to bless us in our future, as you think not only about the next five years, maybe as you would envision the next 40 years of our church, we want to ask you to pray how God would use you in that future. How will He use you to serve? How will He use you in loving other people? How will He use you in being loved and being served? But also, how will He use you in your giving? This generosity blesses the church. This generosity blesses our community and blesses the world. And therefore, we simply want to ask you to do this, to pray. Be informed about where our church is going. Go before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, what do you want us to do financially about this new endeavor? I do know this, and this may rock your world a little bit. The tithe is just a place to begin. And I know some of you are probably trying to work up to a tithe. Keep going toward it. But if the Old Testament standard is 10%, my friends, the New Testament standard is this. <laughs> they gave more than they could because they had been touched by the grace of God. Find God's will, and whatever God leads you to do is what we want you to do. Here is how I would tie this whole message together. If you are being gripped by grace every day, if every day you were blown away that God the Son became man for you, every day you were blown away that Jesus died for you, every day you were blown away that Jesus was raised from the dead for you, then he will turn the words mine and no into the words, yes, Lord, it's all yours. And I want to be generous to other people because you have been amazingly generous to me. My friends, that is the grace of giving, that is abounding grace, and that is the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this amazing, unbelievable, extraordinary grace. How is it that God the Son would put aside all of his riches in heaven and become unbelievably poor for us? Oh, Lord, as we think about the poverty of our Savior hanging upon a cross, we indeed are blown away by His love. Lord, may that grace change our lives. May the fact that we are now rich in Christ, that we are heirs of His kingdom, that we have a Father who has promised to take care of us every day, may that grace change us so much that we will begin to be 
amazingly generous. We'll be amazed. We'll be surprised at our new willingness to give to others in need. Lord, we thank you for the vision and the mission of this church, for the influence of the last 40 years, and Lord, whatever you will do in the next five and in the next 40, Lord, we are excited to see it. Lord, may you be glorified with our lives, with our gifts, with our faith, because we know it all comes to us by grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.